My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Post Credit Podcast. I am your host, Eric Italiano, senior writer at ProBible.com. And today, I am alone. Kate and Brandon will not be joining me as we have no movies to break down this week. It's kind of the dog days of summer right now. People are still piling into theaters to see Oppenheimer and Barbie, we will be back later this month to discuss perhaps Blue Beetle and Ahsoka if they aren't steaming piles of dog shit. But in the meantime, I have an interview for you with... I have an interview for you with Andre Orvidal, the director of The Last Voyage of the Demeter, a.k.a. Dracula on a Boat. So we are going to take a quick break, and then after that is my interview with Andre. So that's kind of where I want to start, and not so much in terms of vampires but in terms of ships and the sea why don't we get more movies set on ships and the high seas is it because it's hard is it because of an expense thing because i find whether it's a sub like a submarine movie or a pirate movie or something set on an old wooden ship like yours i generally find that i always love them (laughs) i so do i i mean but they're always very hard to make and they tend to be, you know, more expensive than you'd like to make. And they tend to be, um, yeah, they, they do tend to be very hard to make. What, what about that? What about the challenge crafting a ship film did you find to be the most challenging? I mean, it, it's the shooting environment that is so hard because you're, you are on an unstable um environment first of all and it's isolated because you have to use a you know we had to have like um what do you call it uh platforms out to the ship that takes a lot of time even if you have to go to the bathroom you have to get off the ship and over there and and if an actor does that in the middle of a scene you're shooting suddenly you're waiting for 10 minutes for a for a small thing and also just the environment around you there might be ocean and and uh sky but in our case we were shooting in a tank to be able to control the shooting environment more and make it safer and make it more practical but still it's so impractical because on one hand you have a view out to the ocean from the tank so that helps you do have some sky but around you you're still in a in a harbor so you're literally surrounded by um just stuff you're like containers and crew and and equipment and cars and all kinds of stuff so you have to set up huge blue screens and then they don't really cover what you need and suddenly you're in um, rotoscope hell and and it's just a, a grueling um shooting environment also like in our case we were shooting in the middle of the night for like six weeks on on deck of that ship and in the middle of the summer when we were shooting, you only get like in Malta, you only get nine, 10 hours of daylight. No, sorry, of night. And then you're always just fighting that with a situation where you're shooting, the ratio is much smaller than in a regular on a regular set. You also have the issues of uh, the, the short, you know, the short nights, the short shooting nights. So it's, um, it was very tricky. It was a very tricky movie to make, but I think... I love the fact that we were able to do it physically on a on a ship. We constructed the ship ourselves, and it pays off. This film, you know, especially in the age of like the volume tech, 
this film has a real texture to it that that it needs, frankly, not just to put you out on sea, but to have you to immersed in the terror of it. Like you feel the boat cre creaking and cranking and the water splashing up. And, and, and that brings me to something else that I'm curious about in terms of the technical difficulty of the shoot. I, I thought this film was lit, was lit incredibly, which I know is hard, A, because it's at night, B, because like you said, you're on a moving surface and C, it's raining a lot. So talk to me about how you guys, um, you know, honed in on your technique to light and shoot this film. No, I mean, it was uh, it was a lot of planning because on the all the interiors, of course, to start with that, were uh, built on a stage in uh, in Babelsberg in Berlin. So we built the whole ship as one big piece with a couple of offshoots for a couple of specific rooms where we needed something else. And uh, so the whole thing is one big interior of the ship. And then um, we set up uh, basically lights in through little portholes and cracks and, and windows everywhere. And they all had to be synchronized and they all had to be switchable from daylight to nightlight and different um, directions. And also in addition, they were also on like um, uh, some kind of a wobbling system. I don't know what to call it. Like, so they could go up and down to, uh, you know, to give you the feeling with the light inside of the, of the like movement, the bobbing, the bobbing. Yeah, the bobbing. Yes, exactly. That's the word. So that's uh, that was all a, a very, very, an amazing setup that the, uh, our lighting crew did, um, and uh, and also on, in Malta when we were shooting on the exterior of the deck, we had these two enormous light banks. I hope there are some pictures of all that 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 set somewhere that you can that, that find and put in your presentation. But it's. Yeah. Uh, there are uh, just they were just huge and but sometimes they were they were hanging off large cranes and sometimes there would be too much wind on uh, coming in to on the set yeah. and then we had to take everything down and then we like well, okay we've got to see still keep shooting we can't just stop shooting in the middle of the night now so we had an extra reserve lights that then came up on smaller rigs on lower stands and that obviously you know, um, presents a problem visually because this, you know, the moon is up there, not or down here. So we also had, uh, you know, then we had other issues with how, okay, how do we need to change the mechanics of the scene to fit that lighting scenario? And the DOP would be working with reflectors and with anything he could to to change the feeling of the light. And but he's um, Tom Stern, who I lit, who I shot the movie with, was. A, is a master of light and lighting fast and he knows how to create beautiful shapes with minimal lighting it was astounding to watch how he how he walked around the set and just lit it in minutes sometimes mm, yeah it looks great i um less on the camera side and more on the script side horror to me is basically a alchemy of tension right it's how you ratchet up tension at a certain pace to boil at the right time and i'm curious like how that works in this genre how do you decide which character dies first and how that death comes about is it 
already on the page once it gets to you? Is that something that you're involved in? First of all, I don't really walk around with ideas of how to brutally kill people, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, you know, no, no, I know what you mean. The, the uh, but no, I mean, first of all, it comes from the script. It always and but it's a fluid process. The moment you get the script, there are things that are work brilliantly, beautifully, and then you have an idea of something else. So what if we do this? And what if we do that? How can we amp this up? How can we change the focus of this one, this scene? So then you work with the writer to to reshape some of the moments, some of the scenes. But also in this particular case, we obviously had the captain's log from the from the book, the, the actual chapter the movie is based on. And it's kind of a, a, you know, there is a story that's told there. And the first one to go, I believe also in the book uh, is, uh, is uh, the guy named Petrovsky. And he's uh, also the, you know, in our movie, that's, then that becomes the natural choice. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Um, and then this is something I specifically ask hard directors because I find, this to be more difficult in their genre. Cinema is obviously a visual and auditory art form, but it begins on the page. And that's particularly interesting as it relates to horror, given how much of it is conjured through sight and sound. So I'm curious, when you're reading a script, how do you know if something's scary? Do you just have an instinct for, you know what I mean? Like how do you, are, are you able to see it in your mind's eye? How are you able to get from page to film and, and, and know before you get there that this is going to work? Uh, by now it's, I mean, I've loved horror movies from when I was a kid. So I've, I've watched so much horror and I've read so much horror and I've obviously made a few horror movies by now. So it's become kind of my thing in life <laughs> to be able to figure this out. So I have to trust my instincts. And when I'm reading something, I can, yes, I have to sit and imagine how does this scene play? What if we play this whole scene in a wide shot from far away? Is that the best way? Or is it best to be in tight and breathing and not see what's around the character? These kind of decisions are just creative decisions that you can go either way. One director will choose that and another director will choose that. They might both work. If the scene is written with tension in its inception anyway, where you have a great setup, great fear, characters who really are scared of the what's going on, you know, all these elements that uh, actually, but I do think that when it comes, all the, going away from the filmmaking side of it, the actual technical filmmaking side of it, it does come down to the reality of the characters if the characters believe in what they're up against, if you believe in the characters and what they are, the decisions they are making, then essentially, I think you're already on a great path to figuring it out. Well, let me say, I feel like a shortcut to helping the viewers of this film uh, believe in the challenge that the main characters face is, and I love this, and you don't see this a lot in vampire films. They don't know how to deal with it. In most vampire films, Wooden stake, silver bullet, all that is common knowledge. Them like discovering, oh my God, the sunlight for, for the first time, I think makes it so much more of a um, new experience in such a well-worn genre. I, I totally, I love that you noted that because that's something I've also felt about this movie is that we do, even though we all know the basic mythology of Dracula, and that that mythology is essentially there anyway, because this is Dracula. Um, we are still reliving those 
tropes as if they were new because these characters have no idea as you say there is no van helsing telling us how all this works there is nobody they're all lost they're all alone and they're fighting this devil they have no way to figure you know they have no idea what it is yeah i really enjoyed that part of the film now our government just did us the favor of confirming to us that aliens are real (laughs) that's something i kind of always believe in the first place but have you allowed yourself to consider the possibility, and this is a legit, Andre, this is a serious question. Have you allowed yourself to consider the possibility? Because, right, if you think about that, aliens have been myths for a long time. So what differentiates them from vampires and zombies? Have you allowed yourself to consider that things like this might be real too? <laughs> Sorry, like, like vampires, like Dracula-ish? Yeah. Yeah. Oh God, I, I'm such a realist. I believe, you know, I'm such a scientifically minded realist. Therefore, I love this conflict that you'll see if you look into my movies. You'll see that all, most of them, all of them, I really deal with the conflict between science and mm. the supernatural. So does this movie because I'm I am fascinated by the things I don't understand, the things that I cannot grasp. The they you know from religion to religious aspects of that to to just silly superstition, and I think that is a, a you know it's a fascinating subject. But I have to admit I'm such a realist. But I do believe in a I do believe in aliens in a way out there. I don't know if I believe they've been here. Right. Okay. <laughs> because I you know. Like I said, this is something I've always generally believed in, but just in the added context of like closing my eyes and be like, okay, somebody confirmed that they're real. And then applying that to other myths I have experienced throughout my life, it adds a whole new context of, you know, the vampire one sounds a lot more realistic than (laughs) the beings from outer space one, at least. Yeah, no, and there are vampires, there are animals, there are bats, there are vampire creatures, you know, in nature, vampirism isn't unknown. So yeah, one day we'll find a whole coven of vampires somewhere. (laughs) I actually had the chance to interview the last actor to play Dracula on screen before this film, and that is Nick Cage. Uh, And I asked him about the process of adding his own layers and details to a character that's so iconic that virtually everyone knows who he is and understands what he should be. So I want to ask you that same thing. How did you add your own layers and ticks and quirks to such an iconic vision? I mean, I I always thought of him from my read the script. I, I leaned into the idea that he's an old man. He's four, over 400 years old. And I wanted you to feel that texture on somebody who had lived and killed and maimed and tortured. And God knows what this horrible creature has done to steal people's blood for centuries. And I found that to be a fascinating way in that I hadn't seen before because, or not much anyway, because they're usually suave, cool, sexy creatures from in interview with the vampire to, you know, uh, Gary Oldman to whoever. So many people, so many wonderful actors who have portrayed vampires and including Nicolas Cage, obviously. And I just leaned into that fact. And then Javier Boutet was just a perfect actor to portray that kind of menace in a way Hmm. that uh yeah so is is the idea of him being like a like a like a 
creature who gets stronger and becomes younger as he consumes blood and, and is more of that like is that something that was from this chapter as well or were these your own sort of spins on how you wanted this character to look I mean, this chapter in the book is very barren. It's very simple because it's all told through observations by the captain and his crew. So it's about, so the first mate came and told me today that da, 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 he had seen something, somebody walk around on a yeah, ship. Yeah, I had read and he's like, day two, the guy's gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there is, it's very cold and very simple and very, and only at the very end of the chapter does, basically does the captain start losing his mind and start to really go into absolute terror so we uh so it was kind of very simple in it doesn't really say much about dracula at all it just mm -hmm. says something about a shape that is on the ship and his fear of the devil um so it's kind of indicated and we just you know a screenplay some in this case um had to fill out all the stuff that's missing as opposed to a big novel if you're doing actually a big novel of 400 pages you usually have to condense and you have to simplify and take out. We actually had to add stuff. So the script that Bragi Shutt wrote, you know, is about imagining what happens between the captain's log entries. Hmm. Yeah. And I don't know if what I read online was the exact text that Bram Broker had wrote it, but even in its sparseness and bareness, it's still utterly chilling. Yeah, it is. It's you a really know. extremely well-written novel in, in so many ways. It's uh, iconic. Yeah. So I'm almost afraid to ask this because I don't want to give them any ideas, but given how franchise crazed Hollywood has become, combined with how consistently profitable the horror genre is, why do you think there hasn't been another crack at a monster hunter film, i.e., as you brought up Van Helsing? I feel like that's kind of just right there waiting for people. Yeah, no, I mean... Uh, it's true. I mean, there are so many fun stories to tell around that. And of course, there have been a couple of cool action horror movies like Van Helsing and The Lost Witch Hunter, I think was one. And there were movies that is in this kind of ilk of uh, that you're uh, talking about. And But yeah, it's definitely a, a subgenre that can be explored much more because it is fun. And I'm fascinated when you bring up sub subgenres. For the first time last night, I watched Jane Doe as well, which again, both horror, but starkly different than this type of film. Did you see your set? Why did you take this on? Was it just because you liked the script? Did you want to escalate the challenges that you bring on yourself as a film filmmaker? Uh, I'm curious of what leads to your choices in bouncing from subgenre to subgenre. No, I mean, I love horror in all its, you know, all its glory uh, from big horror movies to small, you know, very intimate horror movies. They can all be fantastic stories and scary. And it's the weird thing, a tiny little horror movie of a couple of million dollars can make, you know, can go worldwide, become a big success because people engage in that scary scenario in, in any level. And I, yes, I love challenges. I I, every movie I make has to be something different, something I haven't done before, or else it's, uh, I feel like I'm just threading, and I don't want to try to avoid threading in other people's shoes as well, because there are so many great movies out there, and I love so many of them, and I just want to try to 
make things i believe is a little bit unique you can you can never make something completely unique it will always resemble something mm. uh, and people will see something in your movie that you didn't even realize as you were making it and that's also some of the joy of seeing the reception of a movie is to see how how people react differently to it so uh have you seen the new film talk to me i am dying to see it and it's on my agenda for the next week okay all right i've, I've got to be concerned in how I word this then. Uh, your, your film Jane Doe ends with a with the lead character briefly believing he had escaped this hell, only to realize that he had not. I find this to be a very common horror trope, and no matter how many times I see it, it's effective as hell. Tell me why. <laughs> God, I wish I knew everything about horror. Um, I mean, it's uh... it's so it's so off putting yeah. and bone chilling. Yeah, no, at the same, I think you crave, as an audience in a horror movie, you crave a certain knowledge of what's going to happen, but not exactly what's going to happen. I think the idea that you can kind of feel that I know it's going to come a, a last blast at me here, but I think you just want it at the same time as you know it, is it can kind of be intellectually annoying to realize that you are, in a way, a moment ahead of the film, but at the same time, you're just craving it because it's the, it's the fun of watching a horror movie. I love the way that you framed Hirsch's eyes to have that sheen of gray on them as he's banging up against the um, basement door. And I feel yeah. like for a moment, like his eyes haven't clouded over, but the way that the lighting looks, it looks like his eyes are gray. And as soon as that <laughs> hit, I was like, oh, this guy's so screwed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I love that moment when he just starts hearing that song and everything. I'm, I, that, was, that was great in the script. That is a brilliant script. Yeah, uh, for sure. Tight, so tight. Uh, talk to me about Brian Cox, who's become one of the esteemed actors in the world since you made this film w with him. Got any stories that pop in your head when I bring up his name? Because he strikes me as a very no bullshit guy. So I'm trying to picture like telling him, all right, Brian, in this scene, you're running away from a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, he was he was a he was a fantastic sport about everything we needed him to do. He was in on every single thing and grabbed it by the throat and did what he and, and really was there for every single moment. He's such a pro. And I remember there was one day he was really sick, actually. And he still came and he could have called in sick and we would have lost the production day, but he came as a trooper and worked through the whole day in, with whatever condition he was in um, and did one of, you know, one of the most the best scenes he, in the movie and you can't tell. So it was, um, I don't know, he was such a, uh, and he, you know, he came there, he knew everything, he knew his lines, he understood his character. It was so easy to work with him. Uh, he understood the blocking, and I remember he was. I was uh, asking him to. We had some specific blocking, and I asked him to move around a table and over and just outside of frame. And he knew when he was out of frame, he just knew exactly where the frame was. So the moment he stepped outside the frame, he started dancing. He started tap dancing, <laughs> just for just for the crew. So they all started laughing. I mean, it was while we, the camera was now actually supposed to be on Emil. Um, and it was just like hilarious how well he uh, he instinctively knew the the lenses. And, and when your star brings that combo of professionalism and levity to a set, I could only imagine how much easier that makes your job. 
yeah, I mean, the two of them, both Emil and um, and Brian, were amazing to work with. They were they were really good, you know. And also, you know, obviously, um, God, uh, my mind blanks goes blank now. Uh, uh, who is playing the corpse? Um, oh, oh, I just looked it up last uh, night. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, I suddenly my mind just went blank. But uh, she's also she was also an amazing trooper. She was lying there for. I you was know, curious we- about that. That doesn't seem easy. <laughs> No, it wasn't. And also being still, obviously we fix stuff in post to take out. It's amazing what you see in skin movements and little muscle movements that you cannot predict when you're her, that close. Her name was, is Olwen Kelly. Olwen. Oh my God, I just, I'm embarrassed. Uh, of course, Olwen. Um, thank you. Uh, so that's, um, so she was, the three of them, the trio of them through that shoot were absolutely amazing to work with. And it wouldn't be possible without her as well, just doing all that work so i've got uh one more here before i wrap it up and i'm curious this is a universal film they are perhaps the iconic horror studio this is a dracula film but i'm amazed that they got that they that the marketing team let this film be put out without the word dracula in it i as a film fan love that but i'm shocked that they let that one fly so that got me thinking what do you think about legacy sequels to iconic horror films you've got the halloweens and the exorcists of the world while this isn't so much a legacy sequel it is of course another dracula story you are likely a horror purist so i'm curious what you think about this trend i mean i of course i have a genuine love for all these classic movies that are being remade because they 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 are remade because they're amazing movies or doing done sequels to because they're amazing movies even 10 15 20 years later and uh so that's a hard one of course it's those are amazing movies but it's also possible to reimagine things for a modern audience so it can be a great idea i'm dying to see the new exorcist movie for example um uh, there are some great remakes and some great um follow-up movies uh, years after the original was made so it's quite possible to do it and i don't really see a reason not to i question is do i want to do it i don't know but uh, definitely i i enjoy the the fact that we they can up we can update these movies for a modern audience well and i i catch you at a not a good time because this is of course sad but the great william freakin just passed and yeah. I, and you would hear him talk about the exorcist sequels with such disdain but from my point of view i'm 30 right and i always found that I never got a chance to enjoy Star Wars the way my father did because by the time I understood it, it looked old. So I feel like if you're generally able, genuinely able to reinvent things with a purpose so a whole new generation of fans can learn to love it, I think that that's worthwhile. Yeah, no, I totally get what you mean. I mean, basically, the big reveal of between Luke and Darth Vader is like a meme now. My exactly. kid, 11, who he discovers that through a meme, you know. Exactly. It's like, oh, God, that's a big reveal, you know. Yeah, exactly. All right. Andre, thank you so much for your time today. I had a blast with this film and I can't wait to see what you do next. In fact, just real quick, do you have something lined up next or? I mean, not not that specific. I mean, we're all waiting for the strikes to, you know, to hopefully okay. go over soon. Yeah. yeah. All right, sir. Well, thank you so much for your time and congrats again on other films. 
Alrighty, and thank you to Andre for joining me for that chat. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review on both Apple and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at PostCredPod. You could also follow myself at Eric underscore Ital and Cade at Cade underscore Onder and our buddy Brandon Katz at Great underscore Catsby. All right, y'all. We'll talk to you later this month. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius.